The first message was really what's so special about the church? And then last week it was what does gospel community look like? Because as a church, we want to be a gospel-centered church. We want to be gospel-centered in in our community, in our worship, in our mission. So we're learning all about what does it look like? What is the church supposed to look like? And so what's so special about the church? Well, the church is priceless. And then what does gospel community look like? It looks like loving each other. And then today we're going to look at at really just one passage, but what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? If our mission as a church, which it is, is to be disciples who are growing and making disciples, then we need to know what does it look like? What does it mean to be a disciple? What are we, what are we called to as a body of believers? What, what does it mean for us to live as disciples of Jesus? What claim does that have on our life? What, what influence should that have on our life? What, what should our lives look like? What should our lives be all about? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And so turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We're going to be reading verses 29 to 38. And this morning, we would love for you to go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. God's Word is really the only fallible thing you'll hear this morning. And so our confidence and our hope is in that. And so one of the ways we show reverence to God and His Word is by standing to honor the Lord. So let's read God's Word together. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to him, said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, our trust, our hope is in you. Our confidence is not in our ability to understand your word. Lord, our confidence is not in our ability to live for you to give up our lives for you, Lord. But our confidence is in that you gave your life for us. God, let us see that and let us live for you. Let us see, Jesus, who you are and what you've done for us. Jesus, let us see your great sacrifice on our behalf. Let's see your glorious work for us, Lord. Let's see, 
Let us see your grace and your goodness to us, Lord, and let it inspire us to want to give all to live for you. God, I pray for each and every one of us here that we would hear from you this morning. Holy Spirit, we are desperately in need of you, Lord. We cannot see you, much less hear from you or know you without you. Would you enable us to hear from you? Would you enable me to speak this morning? God, I am weak. Would you make me strong, Lord? Would you make each and every one of us here strong in you and not in ourselves? God, we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, what is the most important thing about you? You don't have to answer that out loud, but I do want you to think about it. What's the most important thing about you? Is it the fact that you're a mom or a dad? Is it the fact that you're a grandma or a grandfather? Is it the fact that you are a teacher or whatever your profession might be? Is it, what's the most important thing about you? Is it where you come from? Your family? Is it your interests? I think that God wants us to see that the most important thing about us is not how we define ourselves, but it's, it's who we see ourselves to be in Jesus. The most important thing about us really is, is what we have to say about who Jesus is. And then what we do with that. The most important thing about us is really the most important thing that that Peter confessed in this passage is he says, you are Jesus, the Christ. And in Matthew he says, the son of the living God. That was the most important thing that Peter could ever say about Jesus, that he'd said about Jesus up to that point. What's the most important thing about you? What defines you? Is Is it your identity or is it your identity in him as a disciple? Is it who Jesus is? Is that what defines you? If you truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, it means that your entire life will be oriented around following him. Does does that define you? Does who Jesus is define you? Now, I trust that most people here believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, but do you see him for who he really is? Do you really understand who Jesus is, and do you, do you let that affect you? Because sometimes we can grow too familiar with who Jesus is so that we really fail to see just how marvelous, how wonderful he is, and we become immune or inoculated to, to the wonder of who Jesus is. You know, there's a a popular show, I think it was popular a while ago. I actually only watched a couple episodes, but it was called Undercover Boss. And in this show, a CEO of a company, he'll, he'll go down into the factory and he'll take on the persona of a factory worker and, in, and he'll do really, most of the time, a terrible job at it. But he'll, he'll submit himself to the people in the factory and he'll try to pass himself off as a worker. And sometimes it's really shocking that the people in the company don't see him for who he is. And then after the big reveal, all the people around him who were working with him, they all were like, oh my goodness, if I knew who was working with me and that it was the CEO, I would have done things differently. I would have acted a little differently. I wouldn't have said the same things. I wouldn't have done the same things. I wouldn't treated him that way. I wouldn't related to him that way. Sometimes... We, we fail to see who Jesus is, and if we fail to see who Jesus really is and what Jesus came to do, sometimes we don't relate to him with the respect that he's due. We don't relate to him with the gravity of what it means that he is our Savior, that he's our Lord. We don't relate to him as disciples. 
Do you see him for who he is? Do you recognize him for who he really is? You think, I think that one of the, the main things that I want us to see, the main ideas I want us to see in this passage, I think that God wants us to see is that to be a disciple means that we need to see Jesus for who he really is. Now that might seem like no duh, right? That might seem really obvious. We need to see Jesus for who he really is to be a disciple, sure. But you know what? Peter didn't see Jesus for who he really was, at least at the time. It took him a little while. But to be a disciple means we see who Jesus really is. Peter had already been with Jesus for at least two years by now, in this point in, in the book of Mark. He had seen Jesus perform all kinds of miracles. Actually, he had been called by Jesus personally. He was out fishing on a boat. He had heard through his brother Andrew previously about Jesus, that, that Andrew was a follower of John. And, and John says, that's the Lamb of God to Andrew. And Andrew went and followed Jesus. He went back and got Peter. And then Peter and John, they're working on their fishing boat. Jesus comes by and he's like, oh my goodness, I want to follow him. He's calling me. And he responds to Jesus. And so you think, well, maybe he really understood what it meant to be the Messiah, but he really didn't see Jesus for who he was. And then Peter I love, if you read through the book of Mark, I'd encourage you in one sitting, sit down and read all through the book of Mark. And I, and I love in the opening chapters, the very first chapter, you see that Jesus goes to Peter's house directly, personally, and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. So Peter personally experiences the power of Jesus. And then Peter sees Jesus perform all kinds of miracles. He sees the lame walk. A guy gets let down through a roof and, and Jesus says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And so he sees this guy get up and walk and Jesus says, hey, so that you know I've got authority to forgive sins, I say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Because he had initially just told that man, you know what? Your sins are forgiven you. All the Pharisees reacted. Peter's not knowing what to make of this, but then he sees this guy get up and walk in response to Jesus. And then, and then you read through the book of Mark all the other miracles that Jesus performed. Not only did the lame walk, but the blind were, had sight. Jesus gave the blind sight. He, he gave hearing to the deaf. Why I recommend you, you read through the book of Mark up until this point is sometimes we become really familiar with who Jesus is and we fail to remember just how astounding how astounding it is that the Son of God came and was, made his, his presence with us, that he lived among us, that he demonstrated who he is, that he has power over the, our physical bodies. But not only that, Peter, he, he got in a boat. He's going across with Jesus. Jesus falls asleep. He's in the middle of this boat, I mean, middle of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and and this big storm crops up, and, and they're all panicking, and they're, they're not they're not thinking that Jesus cares. They're thinking, in fact, that they're all just going to die. So they wake him up and say, don't you even care? And so they wake Jesus up. And what does Jesus do? He speaks to the wind and the waves. And then he says, be silent. And they are. They're still. That's what Peter had experienced up till Mark 8. He had seen Jesus' calm nature. He, he saw Jesus heal every manner of disease, every, every incurable disease. The woman who had an issue of blood, Jesus didn't even have to do anything to her. She just reached out her hand and touched the hem of his garment, and he was, she was healed. He saw Jesus speak to a little girl, Jairus' daughter, and who was dead. And he says, little girl, rise. And this little girl who was dead was raised to life. 
Peter saw all of these things. He was very familiar with what happened. He saw Jesus cast out demons, not just once or twice, but he saw Jesus go to the tombs and this crazy naked man who had broken chains, he was so empowered by the demonic forces within him, who was filled with a legion of demons. Peter witnessed firsthand Jesus delivering that man from a legion of demons. So Jesus demonstrated, not only does he have power over our physical bodies, he had power over nature, he has power over the demonic forces. He has power over life and death. And then not only that, Peter has also seen that that when the disciples were saying, we better send these people away because it's really late at night, Jesus, and there's over 5,000 men here. They're probably more than that people-wise, but, you know, daughters and, and kids and sons, whatever, all, all kinds of people there, at least 5,000 people. And they said, why don't we just send these people home? And, and he said, no, uh, what do you have? He says, well, we've, got five, we've had five loaves and two fish. And the Son of God creates something from Nothing. And he feeds over 5,000 people. He multiplies. He creates life. And he shows them basically that he is the bread of life. He is the source of life. That's who Jesus is. He's the one who gives life. He's the one who feeds people. And then a little while later, just a couple, a chapter or so later, Jesus feeds another group of 4,000 people. They have seven loaves of bread. That's it. Now, I don't know about you, but my wife can do a lot with leftovers, but she can't feed 4,000 people with seven loaves. No one can. And Peter has seen that. He's seen that Jesus must be the creator. He's seen him up close and personal, and he was a good Jew. He knew the Old Testament. He knew what it said about the Messiah, that the Messiah would be the one who makes the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. And so Jesus, he had asked them, who do the crowds say that I am after he just fed 4,000? And they have all kinds of ideas. And then he said, well, what's most important is who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, Peter could have confessed all of the things we just talked about. He could have confessed all the things he witnessed, but he still really didn't understand who Jesus was. Sometimes we can know a lot of facts about Jesus without actually seeing Jesus for ourselves. You can have a lot of facts. You can grow up in the church. You can hear all the Bible stories about who Jesus is and what Jesus did and fail to be amazed by who Jesus is and the claim that it makes on our lives. And Peter says... Still not really understanding what it means that he's the Messiah, he says, you are the Christ, which means the anointed one, the chosen one, the Messiah, the the one that all of the Old Testament looked forward to, longed for, the the Savior of the people of Israel, the chosen one of God, the, the one who would sit on David's throne forever, the one who would rescue his people from slavery, the one who would bring the people into the promised land for good. But he still didn't really see who Jesus is. It's dangerous to be too familiar with who Jesus is. You might know the stories of Jesus. You might have been raised on all of them. You might have heard all the things about what Jesus did. Don't let yourself be unaffected by that. Marvel anew 
Jesus has power over life and death. He has power over nature. He has power over the supernatural, over the spiritual. He has, he has power over physical bodies. He is the Lord of all creation. He's, he's the one who gives life and breath and everything. And we need to see who he is because that's who we trust in. That's who we look to. Jesus didn't quite see it. He, was, he made his confession. And so after Peter makes his confession. Look down your Bibles in verse 31. It says Jesus did something right after that confession because Jesus wanted to explain what it really meant that he's the Christ. What did it really mean that Jesus is the Christ? What does it mean to believe, to see who Jesus is, to believe that he's the Christ? And Jesus says in verse 31, and he began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He had to suffer He'd be rejected by all the religious leadership of Israel. And then he says, and be killed. And then rise again after three days. And Jesus is saying, Peter, if you really understand what it means that I'm the Christ, you, you need to know this, that to be the Christ means that I must be rejected. I must suffer. I must be killed. Because to be the Christ means that I have to give myself, that I give myself for the salvation of the people. And so Jesus began to teach them he's the Messiah, the Son of Man, that he had to suffer and be rejected and be killed and rise again. But, but, but Peter was scandalized because that's not what Peter thought the Messiah should be. The Messiah should not be someone to suffer. The Messiah shouldn't be rejected. The Messiah shouldn't die, Right? Because that wasn't Peter's ideal of who Jesus was. And you know what? Sometimes we can have an ideal of who Jesus should be. And those two things often don't match up. We can have our own ideas about who Jesus should be. We can have our own ideas about who we are, too. If we understand that Jesus was called to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and that we're called to follow him, then it's going to change how we live. If you see the sacrifice of Jesus for you, if you see that the Messiah came to suffer, to be rejected, to die for you, it changes how you respond to him. If you see that Jesus came to suffer for you and me, because he did. You know, all of us here deserve suffering. There's not one of us here who could honestly say, I don't deserve to suffer. I know it's a hard word, but actually each and every person here, apart from Christ, we deserve to suffer. Because all of us have rebelled against God. Peter was thinking he just needed someone to come in and to to establish an earthly kingdom. He was thinking, no, I want the Messiah who will just make things better for me here and now. I want a Messiah who will give me all that I need here and now. I want a Messiah who will make things better. I want a Messiah who gives me or makes the Jews better. Who makes us dominant so we're no longer slaves. I want a Messiah who just gives us the perfect utopian life here and now. He didn't really see who Jesus was, what he came to do. You know, sometimes we can, we can model Jesus in our own image and we just want Jesus to, to give us utopian life. And we're like, no, Jesus. I, I, just, I just need you to make my life better now. I just need you to 
make my life comfortable. I just need you to give me the victorious Christian life now. I just need you to to make me healthy and wealthy and wise. And I just need all of these things to be comfortable and good. That's what I really need Jesus to be for me. And Jesus says, no, I, I'll have nothing to do with that. I must suffer. I must die. I must be killed because there's no other way. You don't just need your life to be better. You need to be rescued. You need a replacement. You, you needed him to be rejected for you because you were rejected by God. You need Jesus to die for you. I need Jesus to die for me because we were dead in our sins. If you see that's what you need Jesus to be, then it changes how you live your life. You know, Peter, he, he thought that Jesus was just supposed to make things better, to bring his best life now. He may have even wanted to be a part of the team running things. Who knows? It seems a little like that if you read the Gospels, that Peter and James and John, they kind of, they probably wanted to, to ally, uh, you know, ally themselves with Jesus because it meant that they were going to actually be in leadership in some way because they kind of asked for that later on in the Gospels. We don't know exactly his motives here, but it seems like that might be a little bit motivating things. He wanted to be part of the winning team. And so Peter rebukes Jesus because he didn't really see Jesus for who he was. Do you think if, if you really saw who Jesus was, do you think if Peter really saw who Jesus was, if he really understood this is the son of God, do you think he really would have rebuked him? I don't think so. But you know what? Sometimes we can rebuke God as well. Say, God, you know what? This whole suffering thing, this is not part of life. You ever, you ever feel that way? You ever feel like, wait a minute, I, I thought that this was supposed to be, you're supposed to make my life better and good. God, how could you? How could you allow suffering? How could you allow hardship? How could you allow trials? You know, maybe you don't believe that theologically, but practically we feel that way. Practically we feel like something must be wrong. You know, I, I'm living for Jesus, but, but clearly he doesn't love me because my life is not perfect. My life is going badly and I'm sick or I'm suffering. And people legitimately are sick and suffering here. But we need to see that Jesus didn't come to make this life better. He came to give us true life, ultimately. Now, does, does he make this life better in many ways because we can trust in him, we can rest in him, we have peace in him? Yes. But he didn't come necessarily to make all of our suffering go away, our trials, our problems, our struggles. And sometimes we doubt who Jesus is because we experience those things. Peter doubted that, how could, no, Jesus, you can have nothing to do with this suffering because that's not the way the Messiah is supposed to be. Maybe you've rebuked God for your suffering or in your suffering and said it's not supposed to be this way. God, surely that can't be right. Christians are supposed to be victorious. Jesus had nothing to do with that, though. He, he turned to Jesus, and he, I mean, he turned to Peter, and he looked down in your Bibles. It's, it's shocking. Jesus knows that Peter has a wrong notion of what it means to be a disciple. And so he looks, and he sees, not only Peter, he looks around, he sees his disciples, 
And his disciples are probably buying into this notion. He says, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebukes Peter. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus didn't actually believe that Peter was Satan, but what Peter was saying was satanic in the sense that the very temptation that the devil brought to Jesus in the wilderness was that, Jesus, you know what? You don't really have to suffer. That's not necessary. And Jesus says, no, that's a satanic idea. The Son of Man must suffer. God didn't come just to give us a perfect kingdom here and now. He says, Peter, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What are you longing for? Who do you see Jesus as? Somebody just to make your kingdom better? Or somebody to bring God's kingdom Jesus came as a suffering servant to sacrifice himself. To suffer in our place, to be rejected, to be killed for us because we must have a savior like that. And, and I love that we sang today that, that our hope is in him and him alone. You know what our hope in, is in? It's not in, in making this world a better place. Our hope is not in, in making our lives a utopia because if we're living for those things, you're living like Jesus came to give us those things, you're always gonna miss what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus doesn't mean that he makes our world better here and now, although he's gonna bring a new heaven and a new earth and ultimately replace our world with, with his kingdom completely. But what we need is for Jesus to make us free in him, to deliver us from our sins. And if we see that he is our sin bearer, if we see that he has made us truly free, if we see that we are no longer rejected because he was rejected, that we no longer will die because he has died, then, then we're gonna begin to grasp what it means to be a disciple. What it means to be a disciple is see him for who he really is and what he came to do. But not only that, Jesus says that really we have to embrace what it means to follow him. So to be a disciple means to embrace what it means to follow him. Look at what he says in the next verse after he explains to Peter that Peter is focused on the things of man. He says he called him the crowd of the disciples said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. Back in the 80s, when, when seven, late 70s and early 80s, when I was growing up, there used to be this slogan for the army. Anybody know what the slogan was? It was, um, be all you can be, right? That sounds really positive, doesn't it? Be all you can be in the army. And it was this really positive jingo. And, you know, and it, it, was, it was a great notion of, you know, just join the army. You can be all you can be, and you can go on to greater things. And you know what? You'll get, the, you'll get your college paid for. You'll get the GI Bill, and it'll be great. And you'll, get, you'll, earn a, you'll learn a skill and, and some practical life experience. And then you can really realize your potential, be all you can be. That sounds great. And it sounded great until like 1990 when the U.S. engaged in Desert Storm. And then troops were deployed around the world in Iraq and Kuwait and Afghanistan. And, and so people began to die in, in greater numbers than had happened in many years. And people began to be upset that American lives were being lost. 
throughout the 90s and early 2000s. And then there became not this, they, they dropped that, that line, be all you can be. Because it, they couldn't be that optimistic anymore. Because it meant something to be part of the army. It meant that you'd sacrifice. It meant that it was risky. It meant that you might die. It meant that you would probably face conflict at some point in your military career. And so parents were discouraging their kids from, once they graduated from high school, please don't go in the army. And so then they started these campaigns that were geared towards the parents. I thought that was kind of odd. In, in the 90s, 2000s, it was, you know, you made them strong. Now we'll make them army strong. It was marketing because they, they knew they couldn't say be all you can be, but you know what? They, they'll be stronger as a result of these conflicts. They'll be stronger as a result of these things because being in the army, it had an implication. The army knows that to be a soldier means being willing, willing to risk it all, to give everything, to lose your life. I think that's true today, especially as, you're, as you think about the news and, and the conflict that's going on in, in, around the globe. You have the ongoing conflict with North Korea that you never know how that could end. And so if you're going to be in the army, you know that it might mean you're going to be called up to, to potentially fight in a war that nobody wants to fight. It means something. It's a commitment. It, it has a gravity to it. And, and Jesus says that, you know, if you're going to be my disciple, there it means something. Don't, don't give in to the, the marketing of, of the past that says that, you know, Jesus will fill the God-shaped hole in your heart. Or that, you know, he's coming to just give you a better life, to give you hope and peace. And all those things are true. But he, he didn't come to just make your life better. He came because you were dead in sin and needed to be rescued. And so following him, though, it means something. Look in verse 34. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means denying ourselves. It means taking up our cross. It means following him. If you see that Jesus is the Son of God, really, if you see that all of his miracles attested to who he is, if you see that he had to suffer, he had to be rejected, he had to die for you and be raised to life for you, then, then it's going to make you want to follow Jesus. But as you are seeing who Jesus is and deciding to follow him, realize that it means something. This is, this is not a, hey, I can follow him, but when he gets hard, I'm going to turn back or you know, in a soldier, he joins the military. When they face battle, he can't just leave. There's consequences for that. It's called AWOL. He gets thrown in jail. Now, illustration breaks down there, but there's consequences. There's a reality to following Jesus. And Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you've got to deny yourself. There's a cost. What does it mean to be a disciple? There's a cost involved. We have to embrace what it means to follow him. This is not easy believism. We don't want people who are pretending to be Christians because it makes their life happier. We don't want people pretending to be Christians because they think it's going to be easy. When people are saying, you know what, because Jesus gave his life for me, I am going to follow him 
no matter what it means. And he says what it means is denying yourself. What does that mean? Think about it for a second. What does denying yourself mean? I mean, it doesn't mean that I don't exist. That's not what he means. He's not saying deny the fact that you exist. But he says deny what you otherwise would live for yourselves. Deny your desires. Deny what you think will fulfill you. Deny what you think you need. Deny your deepest longings if you think that drugs or alcohol or relationships or people or approval of others or money or comforts, if you think those things will give you something, you need to deny yourself and follow me. You have to renounce all trust in yourself, denying that you have any merit before God on your own, saying that, Jesus, I I come to you because there's no other way. I deny that I have any merit in myself, that you had to earn my righteousness. I deny that I could live life on my own that was pleasing to you. I deny that I can do it now. God, I, I deny that, that I could earn favor before you, that you had to earn favor. Lord, I deny that, that I could be reconciled to you on my own by how I live. I deny all those things. I deny myself. That's what it means to deny yourself. It means saying, I'm going to be committed to no longer live for myself and my desires, but now I'm going to be committed to living for you, Jesus. Now, in some sense, that's actually impossible on our own. But it's saying, I deny all faith in myself. And I place my faith in you, Jesus. Have you done that? Have you placed your faith in Jesus? I don't mean one time, but continually. Because it's an ongoing denying ourselves, ongoing placing faith in Jesus and not us. Denying all those things that have to do with the old self, denying living for the approval of others, denying living for comfort or honor or pleasure. And at this point, you know, he, he says, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself. And then he says something that must have been strange for them. He says, and let him take up his cross. Jesus had not yet died on the cross. They didn't understand how he was going to die. They knew that he had to die and be raised again. And, and, and actually in Mark, I think there's three places that he specifically, directly, plainly tells them that he will die and be raised again. But they didn't understand that it would be on a cross because that's so shameful. But he tells them, he says, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross. Now, the cross is not just plain suffering in our lives. The cross isn't dealing with your mother-in-law or your mother or her father or whoever that might be. And by the way, I'm not slamming moms by saying that. It's just, it's common. It's hard for us to get along with our relatives. Denying yourself, taking up your cross doesn't mean that you put up with a, a, a grumpy boss that's taking up your cross necessarily. It could be if you're doing it for the sake of Christ. It could be if you're doing it for the sake of living for him. If you are loving your in-law or parent or siblings or ex-wife or husband because Jesus has loved you, then that would be taking up your cross. Jesus knew what a cross was. They knew what a cross was. They had seen people 
hung on crosses all around them. The Romans used to make an example of criminals by hanging them on a cross right outside the city gates so that for all to see as they came and went, they would see what punishment looked like, what it looked like to be ashamed, what it looked like to be openly rejected. And so Jesus says, you have to deny yourself. Anybody would come after me. You want to be my disciple, really? You've got to see who I really am, who what I came to do, and then you're going to need to deny yourself, and then not only deny yourself, but it requires death. It requires death. But the good news is, as we die to ourselves, he makes us alive in him. We'll see that in just a minute. Take up the cross, the place of shame, the place of suffering, the place of death for him. Being willing to put to death those desires to live for ourselves, being willing to suffer for his name's sake, for the gospel, being willing to suffer shame for his name's sake and for the gospel. It means loving Jesus more than the honor, approval, or affection of others. It means loving him to the point that we're willing to say, Jesus, I will die for you. Not to earn your favor, but because you died for me, because you, were, you suffered, you were rejected, you died for me. What do you need to deny yourself today? Is there some pleasure that you're placing ahead of Jesus? Is there something you're trusting in that you need to die to in order to follow Jesus? Let me ask another way. Is, is there anything you're afraid to let go of? Any comfort that you're holding on to? Any desire, any relationship, any food, any drink, any, anything that you need to deny yourself for the sake of following him. Not to earn his favor, but because he is the Christ. He has suffered, he has been rejected, he has died for you. So everything else pales in comparison because he came to give you life. He came to set you free, he came to deliver you from your sins, he came so that you were completely free before God. Lastly, not only does it, does it mean seeing who Jesus really is and understanding what it means to follow him, it means living for his reward. To be a disciple means we live for his reward. Now, where am I getting that? Look in, look in verse 35. It says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel is will what? Will save it. That doesn't mean you save yourself, but when you lose yourself to Christ, you will find that your life has been saved. To be a disciple means living for his reward. You know, I was thinking just a few weeks from now, the Olympics are coming up again. And in the Olympics, it's amazing how many athletes devote their lives to their sport and to what they do and trying to be the best in the world. And you get to see all these people who have really given their lives for their sport come together and compete. And, and it's, it's, it's astounding what what the human body is capable of if with discipline and a lot of work and it's, and it's really amazing the feats that they can complete. And so it, it's, it's neat to marvel at the ability that God has given to people. But in some ways it's really, it's really sad. I know it sounds crazy to say about the Olympics. We're supposed to cheer the Olympics on, right? It's supposed to be a great thing. But it's sad. They live their whole lives for what? Often for a medal or for some external rewards the athletes they live for the prestige for the gold 
and it's enjoyable and we can rejoice with people made in the image of God and see what they can create. But, but ultimately, I can't imagine that any gold medal winner who didn't know Jesus and has died, I can't imagine they're all that impressed with their gold medal anymore. I can't imagine any rich businessman who is, did not know Jesus and they are in hell, I can't imagine them bragging about how much money they made while they suffer eternally. You know, no, no dead famous actor of the past who loved themselves instead of loving God, none of them will be really proud of the Oscar that they won. I can't imagine that they think it was all worth it. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. There's both a warning and a promise there. The warning is, let's not live to preserve our lives. Let's not live for this life here and now. Let's not live to try to make the best of everything here, to make our own utopia, to make things perfect. Because living that way to preserve our reputation, preserve our comfort, to preserve what we find most valuable, to hang on to those things that we think will keep us. He says, if you do that, if you live that way, you're going to lose your life in the end. And so there's a warning there. Another part of the warnings in verse 36. He says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Reminds you of the parable, reminds me of the parable that Jesus told of the, of the rich man who, who spent his whole life in agriculture and building these big barns and filling them full of wonderful things. And he says, now I'm going to take it easy and rejoice in the good life. And Jesus says, you fool, your, your life's required of you. You're living for the best life here, but when, when you die, it's all going to burn. If you try to live your best life now, you will lose your life. If you want to live a safe, comfortable life of pleasure and honor and satisfaction, Jesus says you'll live your life, you'll lose your life in the end. What he means is you won't just die, you'll die eternally. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means living for what matters. It means living for his ultimate reward. It's a sobering passage. This is not like, woo, a pick-me-up message. But you know what? It is in one sense because it says, if you lose your life for Jesus, you will find that you've saved it. Now, I don't mean you save yourself. Don't get that wrong. He says, if he ever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels, meaning trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ, will save it, meaning you will found, find your life saved as you're trusting in Jesus you know, what if you had everything you could ever want in this world, but if you forfeited your life in the end? He says, what are you going to trade for eternal life? Eternal life is a stake, but eternal life is a reward. What will you trade for that? You know, think of so many people who, who had it all. Ernest Hemingway, one of my favorite authors, and he had such a sad life. In the end, he ends up taking his own life. One of the most famous authors of, of the 1930s, William Malm, or how you pronounce his name from the 30s, he wrote a book called novel of, The Novel of Human Bondage. He, he lived for himself. He lived for his refined tastes. He lived for his own comfort and his own perversions. And 
1965, he was aged 91, and one of his nephews, who was a believer, went to go and visit him. He was living in the south of France in the Riviera, and he was, I'm sorry, 91, and, and he was still getting 300 fan letters a week. And so his nephew goes to visit him, and he, and he sees all of these objects of his success, all these things that his success allowed him to to have and, and he saw that boy he has 11 servants in his house he lived by himself with 11 servants and he was the envy of all the millionaires in the Riviera and yet one day his, his nephew walked in and he had given him a Bible at the beginning of the trip and so his, his uncle had begun to read the Bible and he was reading it and he walks in and his, his uncle is sneering at this passage in the Bible and he says what's, what's the matter and he goes well it's this passage I came to the point where it says that you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Whoever has saved his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will, will save it. He says, that's just nonsense. I used to, used to have that verse over my bed when I was a child, but I've realized that all that stuff is just hogwash. And then his nephew said shortly thereafter, he, he began to take a turn for the worse. He started to get ill and then in his last days, he would repeatedly cry out. He would cry out, go away, I'm not ready. I'm not dead yet, I'm not ready, go away. Not sure what he was talking to or who he was talking to, but it's a frequent occurrence. His nephew says he died an empty, shriveled husk of a man, terrified of death and in agony, in the end all alone. He gained the whole world but lost his soul. For believers, the reason we lose all, that we give up all, that we are willing to lose confidence in ourselves is that we might gain life in Christ. As you see that there is life in Christ. He does give you peace with God here and now and peace forevermore. He does give you hope here and now in him and not in yourself. True hope that will never be taken away. He does give you confidence in him. True confidence that never can be ripped from you. He gives you approval that can never be removed. He gives you the approval of God permanently if you trust in him. Don't live for the approval of others. He gives you the comfort of knowing his presence, of knowing that you're secure in him. So don't live for the comfort here and now. He gives you the hope that is found in knowing that all your sins are forgiven. So don't indulge those things here and now. There's a reward. There's something greater that we're living for. And at Matthew 16, 27, it's the same passage, the same account. At the end, he said, in that passage, he says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he'll repay each person according to what he's done. And, and I, you're tempted when you read that passage to think, okay, um, what's Jesus talking about according to what he's done? Does that mean we earn our salvation? Is that what he's talking about? According to what he's done? He'll repay us according to what he's done? But it's not saying that. What he's saying is according to what he's done. And that are we trusting in him? Are we looking to him? Are we denying ourselves? Are we taking up our cross? Are we following him? It's not earning salvation, but Jesus says, if you have trusted in me, I'll repay you according to what he has done. According to what Jesus has done, you'll be repaid. 
He'll give us eternal life. He will reward us. What are you living for here and now? Being a disciple, it, it means seeing Jesus for who he really is. It means, it means counting the cost of following him, but it also means that you're living for reward. One that will last, it will never be taken away. That's what we want to be like as a church. That's our mission. It's, not, it's to identify ourselves primarily by who we are in Christ Jesus and not by what we do or have or anything else here in this world saying I, I want to be identified with him I want to follow him I want to I want to live for Jesus there's a lot of there's a lot of identity confusion in the world today there's a lot of confusion about who who we really are who people really are and, and Jesus says no I, I want you to understand what does it mean to be a disciple it means understanding who I am it means following me it means living for the reward it means that you're mine you belong to Jesus and that he'll reward you on that day when he returns. Don't be confused. Your identity doesn't lie in anything here. Your identity relies in Jesus and in him alone. And that is something that will never be taken away. And that's something that we, we can be called sons and daughters of the living God. Adopted, secure in him having an eternal inheritance that will never fade, that is kept in heaven, that will never be taken away from us. That's what we live for. That's what we long for. Let's trust in him. Let's pray. Couldn't have the band come up as I pray. And Father, I pray that you would help us set aside all trust in ourselves. Jesus, I pray that you would help us see you for who you are pray that you would enable us to see your greatness, your goodness. To see that you have suffered, you have been rejected, you have died for us. And that you came to give us life eternal and salvation. Lord, let's rest in you, let us trust in you and look to you alone. And then Lord, enable us to do what we can't do on our own, Lord. Enable us to deny ourselves by your grace, by your Holy Spirit's empowering. May we follow you, enabled by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.